how can we know if our countries or other countries are really democratic? Even when democracy doesn't have one single definition of political science, right? How do we know how to assess them and where to place them on that spectrum of democracy and authoritarianism? This is not an easy question to answer, and there are multiple answers. But today, I wanted to look into the opposite of concepts that I think many of us like to talk about, like freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, human rights in general, hey, freedom to hold certain beliefs, let's say. And the opposite of that, or one of the opposites, is the concept and the reality of political prisoners. And this is what I want to talk to you about today, trying to answer the questions of why is it problematic in the first place to define it and to point it, but also why is it so painfully real? What can we do about it? And as importantly, why does it matter that we take action? So thank you for being here. Thank you for caring. I have a lot to cover in this episode. So let me begin. So you might have heard the concept of political prisoners or prisoners of conscience or political dissidents, right? Linguistically, there are many words that we could be using to define in a slightly vague way, I understand, a group of people. But what's the origin? That was my question. What's the origin of political prisoners as a concept and how did it come about? And actually, the first time prisoner of conscience, this concept, or political prisoner, it was used in 1961 in an article by an activist, a British activist, Peter Benenson, in an article that he wrote talking about the case of two students in Coimbra, a city in Portugal, who raised a toast to democracy, to freedom, basically. And they got imprisoned by the then Portuguese Salazar dictatorship. Not only did he use that term, but he started an appeal. And if you listen carefully, you will be able to guess what organization, an organization that's so much movement-like, when you think about it, stemmed from that. And that appeal, that campaign, was called Appeal for Amnesty. 1961, Appeal for Amnesty. So you might guess that indeed, this is what became that year and grew into what we call now Amnesty International. That's the origin of Amnesty International. A huge, I would say, yeah, well-respected human rights organization that has various campaigns, and I will come back to it later in this episode. But So that's the very origins, at least linguistically, of political prisoners, prisoners of conscience. Once again, there are many different words that could be used. But the difficulty of defining somehow what a political prisoner is, is that, of course, countries who have political prisoners, that is, people who get imprisoned because they are opposing, in the way that I guess is clear to the government, a certain regime, a certain mainstream way of thinking, the main political party, the ruling class, it could be right. So there are different scenarios how that could look. And I know there are also different actions people could be taking. Sometimes there is no action. Maybe you just belong to a party. Then the government decides, you know, this is not a party we want to have in this country. But very often, really, when we say political prisoners, the definition that we have in mind is more prisoner of conscience, as Peter himself used in that article, saying that people who are in prison for having certain 
political, usually, beliefs. And yes, because countries wouldn't really admit that these are our political prisoners, right? Then the very fact itself that this category doesn't exist officially in the country's, uh, let's say, constitution or a set of you know laws in general, it can make it a little bit more complicated in a way. But at the same time, we do have various human rights treaties, some binding, meaning the countries that signed them have to abide by them, and some treaties that don't have the binding power. Declaration of Human Rights, of course, we have uh, we have another one, International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. That's a very specific one, and it's a binding one. So, in general, although we might not have laws in specific countries defining what that is, we have international treaties. We are allowed to talk about human rights as we have defined human rights. We have that in the international law, so we are actually allowed to talk about it even with the complexities, even if individual countries wouldn't allow their prisoners to be called political prisoners. Let's not allow vague and cloudy language that certain countries might use when they talk about the people they're imprisoning to affect us in a way. But a good question to ask is, okay, if we agree that it's a real concept and we are allowed to talk about it and to obviously refer to international law, the very concept of human rights, right? If we agree that we are in this paradigm, we can say, okay, what are the examples? What are the examples of some political prisoners? And my goodness, we have a lot. And I have to say, what I'm about to mention, I, I just picked these examples because I'm more familiar with them. And by no means, I want to say that this is an exhaustive list. Sadly, or even tragically, it is not. Historically, when we talk about political prisoners, many things, many countries sadly come to mind. Of course, we had tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of political prisoners in the whole South America, and then later on Latin America in the 60s, 70s, and then Latin America in the 80s. Basically, people who were on the left opposing the right-wing dictatorships that the CIA-backed military coups installed in basically almost the whole South America in the 60s, and then continued that, expanded that in the 80s in Central America as well. So we're talking about people who were imprisoned, people who were tortured, people who were killed, people who were disappeared, some people being pushed from planes into the ocean. So an extremely bloody history not just of those decades of South America and then Central America, but these are sadly good examples. We know that the ex-Brazilian president, Juma Rousseffi, or Dilma Rousseff, she was a political prisoner in Brazil in the 70s because she was also very much opposing the Brazilian dictatorship at the time. She was in prison for a couple of years. She was tortured in prison. At a similar time, in Indonesia in the 1960s, we had the mass killings by the CIA-backed regime of General Suharto. So we had mass killings. When I say mass killings, that is, the estimates are between half a million and a million. Half a million and a million people who were, let's say, in the Communist Party, who were associated with the Communist Party, because that was a party that was gaining popular support in Indonesia in the 60s. They were imprisoned, tortured, and killed because of their political association. As I'm saying that now, I know that, oh my goodness, how many countries have had that? So once again, these examples are just some. We can point to Cambodia 
and its genocide. We can point to many countries historically, and we can point to many countries now. For example, we know that in Russia, the anti-war movement is being suppressed. Tens of thousands of people who've been protesting the war are in jail now. You might have heard of a very recent case in which now the father of a 12-year-old girl in Russia was sentenced to two years in prison because his daughter, her crime, or his crime now, was to have drawn an anti-war drawing, kids drawing, saying, please stop the war. In Belarus, we know that in 2020, the, the popular uprising, let's say a wave of protests against Lukashenko's decades-long dictatorship, actually these massive protests erupted, and they've been also violently oppressed, and all the major opposition political leaders, uh, they're all either imprisoned or in exile, including in Lithuania, which is actually my, my own country. So what do we have? Political prisoners. We have in Egypt, that I will come back to a little bit later in this episode, I'm not sure if we can have an estimate, but it goes up to over 60,000 political prisoners. And let's say this is a very inflated number. Let's deflate it by a percentage. That would still be a very, very large number of people. I mean, Egypt is a big country, but that is a lot of people. And let's not forget that we do have political prisoners in countries that we like to consider liberal democracies or well-established democracies even. Like in Spain, for example, we had some Catalan leaders who were very much proposing right, the Catalan independence, uh, that the independence bid. Let me quote an article title on this specific case, which says, UN Human Rights Committee finds that the Spanish state violated Catalan political prisoners' political rights because basically they were suspended from public duties before any conviction, which is something illegal if you're a signator of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. And another country that is, by definition, in terms of its timeline, a very imperfect, but we, we call it democracy, right, the U.S. And I'm just going to mention one of its political prisoners, the one who is hopefully still very known, and you've heard of him, and you've been checking how he's doing, you've been signing petitions and doing your advocacy work, Julian Assange, a publisher, WikiLeaks, remember, a journalist doing or having done what good investigative journalists do, obviously carefully, making sure that the information releasing how it's redacted, right, their standards, journalistic standards. A journalist who is now in jail because of the US and UK and even Sweden, I, Scandinavia, why, collaboration. He's been in jail for years now, still awaiting his trial for having published crimes of the empire. The thing that really angered the states, we can guess, are the war crimes that the WikiLeaks have revealed that the US troops committed in various countries. So while war criminals, people who have ordered and committed war crimes, they're not imprisoned, they're not being trialed, right? It's the publisher. So what kind of system is that? It's a very good, very important question to ask. So the question now is, why does this matter? 
Why is it important to us? What kind of value does it create for us to know about this concept, about the origin, um, the examples, and just to know that, yes, there are political prisoners in the world. So to answer this question more broadly, I think this is a great litmus test to see how are our countries, our maybe democracies, maybe something that we see as democracies are doing. Because once again, in political science, there is no one single definition of democracy. It's weird, right? But it doesn't exist. We have democracies with adjectives from very loose to sometimes very, very specific uh, definitions of democracies. So when we look at that spectrum from some uh, ideal perfect democracy that, of course, doesn't exist to some really horrible closed off regime, um, you know, where people have very few rights or almost none, we can say, okay, what are the factors? What are the things that we should look at to see where we can place countries? So we know where countries could be doing better and maybe to see where our work lies as well in making our countries or making other countries, just making humanity better in a way. So if we think of human rights and we think freedom of speech is, you know, one big one, then I have to say, okay, what about, what about this thing that's kind of like the opposite? Would looking into that give us a better view of how a certain country is doing? And I think it does. And another question to ask is maybe not uh, on a, such a systemic kind of level, but why, why does it matter that we know and what can we do with that knowledge and what can we do about it? And why it matters that we know, the answer is actually very optimistic. It's, I think it's a very beautiful answer. And that is because we can. We can affect change. Why do I say that? Because we have. Because we have done it in the past. I know it can all sound very hopeless and and why to do anything if the result isn't guaranteed. Well, I think that might relate to your life philosophy in general, I understand. But there is hope and there are concrete victories in this case. We know, for example, that if it's a Palestinian prisoner being kept in Israeli jails, usually people living under military occupation that is illegal and maybe resisting it, which people who are occupied have the rights to. I think Ukraine has shown that we agree that people have a right to resist a military occupation. I hope it's, it's been established now, more recently. So when a Palestinian political prisoner who can also be in jail for a very long time with no charges because the occupier who is already behaving illegally doesn't have to comply with any laws when you think about it. So if that prisoner is going on a hunger strike that many Palestinian prisoners do, I know the ones who are getting more attention, the ones who are making it a little bit uncomfortable for Israel to allow them to die, these are the ones that have a greater chance of being released because there is that pressure, there are those campaigns, there are those hashtags, right, about them. And it gets uncomfortable, even, even for a country that can kind of do whatever it wants and no one says anything and no one dares to say anything and so it can continue acting with complete impunity. Even a regime, <laughs> even a country like Israel, still somehow pays attention. 
So if we can make a country pay attention by us paying attention to a specific case or two specific cases, we know that it works. And for some people, it can literally, which is the point, right? And for them, it can mean actually regaining their freedom. So last year, you might have seen some images or videos of the Palestinian detainee Khalil Awade, who was on a hunger strike for almost, listen up, for almost six months. For almost six months. That is a very long time. And he was in a very bad state towards the end. But so Israel felt that, you know what, it wouldn't be great for our image if we allowed this man to die, even though, of course, our forces abuse and kill Palestinians on a weekly, sometimes daily basis. But that got international attention, and that attention worked. Another case just from last year was of a Palestinian Egyptian activist, Rami Shaad, who was released after over two years of being imprisoned by the Egyptian government. He was released last year because of an international campaign, because of that pressure. So we know, we know that we can affect change. We know that it's possible because we've done it before. And if we continue putting pressure on governments, that people can get released, maybe not all the political prisoners, probably not, not everywhere, but for those people who are released, for them, that is a very, very, very big difference. And without saying that I understand how it is to be a political prisoner, I like to guess that for many of us, that kind of situation, being locked down and having no hope, that that is literally a nightmare. That is literally a nightmare. And it's a nightmare that we ourselves are in that situation and or that our loved ones are locked up somewhere and we don't know what's happening to them. We don't know if they'll be released. We don't know if they're alive even. That is a nightmare. But that is a nightmare from which we can wake up and we can say, my goodness, that is not the reality. How great. But that is a situation from which many people Many families cannot wake up. Political prisoner, for them, is not a concept. It's not some concept of the definition where we can debate. It's a reality. I'm releasing this episode on the International Day of Conscience. It's one of the official UN days. And I think we can take action on any day. It doesn't have to have a specific name. But today, this week, when you can... I invite you to take that action because you know, now you know about it, you know that change is possible, but we really have to make it happen. And it really, really, really depends on the mass, right? On the critical mass. So we all have to take that action. So I invite you to do what you can and to support two organizations. One is the one that you've probably known about uh, already. So Amnesty International, various campaigns, various regions, once again, very well established, amazing scope of what Amnesty does. And I don't think I have to talk more about it. But there's another organization I want to point to for you to discover and see what they do and see how you can help. And that is the Freedom Initiative. And it's a human rights organization 
They do various kinds of work, advocacy, right? They work with families directly, and they work with political prisoners and their families in the Middle East and North Africa. So Egypt, yes, Egypt is a big one. Saudi Arabia is a big one. And they even have, because it's Ramadan, right? It's the whole month of Ramadan right now, uh, a specific campaign called Reunite Families, because that's what it's about, right? It's about people regaining their freedoms again, and very importantly, being able to see their families and their families being able to see them. In the description of this episode, I'm linking to everything I've mentioned today. I invite you to share this episode, I invite you to check out Amnesty's work, the Freedom Initiative's work, see what's the best way you can support them. Spreading the word is a big deal. It's more important than you might think using the hashtags, reunite families, free them all, signing the petition, signing the letters, even if it's a small bit, that bit can be yours to do. Why? Because we are not imprisoned somewhere. We have that voice. And just because we're not using it always, doesn't mean we cannot use it sometimes. 